Welcome to the History of Violence, back after a long Covid-related hiatus. I'm still planning to continue this series on the history of the Middle East, but in the meantime I'm going to do some one-off episodes to ease back into the swing of things. I'll also be going down to monthly episodes for now. We have some interesting interviews coming up though, so stay tuned for that. Today I'm going to talk about the recent wave of protests in the US, which started out with the death of George Floyd and have become increasingly confrontational. While some violence has stemmed from the protesters, a lot of it, in fact seemingly the majority, was instigated by the police. In Minneapolis, New York, DC, Portland and elsewhere, we've seen law enforcement act not as peacekeepers, but alternately as rioters or shady paramilitary units. Today, I want to focus on this question of how the tactics and culture of America's police became so radical, so politicised and so militarised. The recent murder of George Floyd by police officers in Minneapolis has brought racialised injustice and state violence into renewed focus in America and elsewhere. A situation which is amplified by Donald Trump's divisive rhetoric. The anti-racist protests that continue within the USA are notable for their size, speed and ambitious goals, fuelled in some cases by the coronavirus lockdown and the economic anxiety that this has produced. The fact that both the health and economic consequences of this unforeseen crisis are falling most heavily on already marginalised groups serves to galvanise the movement for racial justice, while highlighting broader arguments about structural inequality. While protests against police brutality are nothing new, the context created by COVID-19 and the Trump presidency have added a new and unpredictable element. A key feature of this long-running social conflict is the violent response of the police, which has infuriated protesters while being stoked and enabled by political figures and agent provocateurs on the right, most notably the president himself. Scenes in major US cities seem to show the police as the aggressors rather than peacekeepers, something which is not new to American politics. The term police riot dates back to the riots at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. While American police have used organised violence to quell protests dating back to at least the 1886 Haymarket riot. What is new, however, is that this has been rendered undeniable by ubiquitous smartphone videos that show the violence in real time. As a recent New York Times op-ed argued, if we're going to speak of rioting protesters, then we need to speak of rioting police as well. The escalation of violence has played into a grown environment of political polarisation, which places the protesters in not just physical, but also cultural combat with the state security apparatus. This fits with a pretty extensive historical literature on social movements, revolutions and civil war, which often sees a tit-for-tat escalation in terms of both actions and rhetoric as the cause of mass violent social unrest. So let's take a little look at that. The academic literature on social movements, associated with Tilly and Taro, among others, sets out a clear process describing how protests escalate into sustained violence. A social movement emerges or reignites in response to some event, organising around mobilising symbols and advancing some set of demands. This might be for democracy, for workers' rights or for economic reform. The government might respond to this with compromise or co-option, but in other cases will respond with violence. Violent overreaction by the state will typically serve to increase public sympathy for the protesters, bringing more people to their cause while radicalising their demands. 
Previously hesitant older and middle class voters will abandon the government, while the protesters who suffered violence will in turn become more extreme in both their tactics and methods and demands. This is why we often get from peaceful protesters demanding economic and political reform to violent protesters trying to bring down the government. Crucially, it's the state violence which fans the flames of social contention, predictably ramping up the tension and conflict. Violence doesn't generally just come from nothing. It instead evolves as a cycle of tit-for-tat escalation, which can spin off in a number of directions. While no theory captures the individual complexities of every case, there are numerous examples following this now familiar pattern. The best is perhaps the Arab Spring, which envelops many countries in the Arab world in 2010 to around 2012. Protesters initially mobilised around a disparate set of demands, protesting against political corruption and economic stagnation. The Jordanian government was able to successfully manage the protests by using strategies of co-option and legitimisation to prop up the regime. On the other hand, the Mubarak government in Egypt and the Tunisian regime both engaged in a heavy-handed crackdown on protesters. This helped weaken both regimes, leaking public support and leading to the defection of the military and the police, thereby eventually collapsing these governments. The ongoing Syrian civil war, as a relic of the wider wave of Arab Spring protests, represents the most extreme possible outcome. This framework can be applied to the current Black Lives Matter protests in the US. The murder of George Floyd was the instigating event, regalvanizing a protest movement that started in 2013, rose to prominence in Ferguson in 2014, but which can be traced back to the older civil rights movement. Some of the protests, the majority of which were peaceful, quickly took a violent turn, with both a heavy-handed police response and rioting by some protesters. There also appears to be several instances of far-right groups instigating violence in an attempt to escalate things further in the hope of sparking some kind of out-and-out race war. There's a significant debate around who escalated the violence first, but there's clear evidence that in many cities the police were not able to de-escalate and appear to have ramped up the violence by attacking largely peaceful groups of protesters. It's particularly telling that in the context of protests against police brutality, Amnesty International recorded at least 150 separate incidents of police attacking peaceful protesters, bystanders and journalists by June 2020. Tear gas, a chemical weapon banned in war, has been used liberally by security forces, including to facilitate a garish foe opportunity for the president. With Trump seemingly hoping for some sort of violent confrontation that will strengthen his pitch as a law and order candidate, federal agencies have become more and more involved in policing the protests. This means that the tactical response has increasingly moved away from policing and towards militaristic solutions in terms of equipment, techniques and personnel. For example, agents from an elite border guards unit, BORTAC, were deployed to Portland and have been relying on extremely violent crowd control methods such as the use of CS gas, pepper bombs, flashbang grenades and sonic weapons. Most worryingly, BORTAC and similar federal agencies have been videoed abducting protesters and throwing them in unmarked vans for questioning. Groups like this, while technically part of the domestic law enforcement apparatus, are militaristic in both culture and training. Indeed, many BORTAC agents are former soldiers, and the group was even deployed to foreign war zones. In this sense, it's US imperialism practiced at home, with the equipment and personnel who were used in Iraq and Afghanistan now being deployed on American streets. This pattern follows a vicious cycle laid out by scholars of contentious politics and revolutions, which is visible in the Arab Spring and elsewhere. Protests start off contentious, but largely peaceful. 
a perceived overreaction by the state leads the protests to grow, adopt stronger demands and use more confrontational tactics. This leads to an even stronger response from the police, who may bring in the military or just use more militaristic tactics, and so on. This may eventually lead to a revolution or coup d'etat, and in cases such as Egypt where the government loses the support of the military. It can also lead to civil war, in cases where the state is very weak or where rebels have outside help. It may also simply lead to a stronger polarisation of society, as protests eventually lose momentum but grievances remain unaddressed. Violence will still occur, but it will be sporadic and loosely organised, rather than large-scale and well-organised. Given the overwhelming strength of the American state, it's the latter outcome which seems most likely. Within this context, it hasn't helped that politicians from the president down have decided to play into greater division as an electoral strategy. Leaders across the bipartisan divide have failed to arrive at a consensus to manage racial hostility effectively, undermining efforts, however minimal they are, to implement an effective police reform bill. The president has continued to ramp up his rhetoric, retweeting a video, now deleted, of one of his supporters shouting white power at a protester and accusing the Black Lives Matter movement of treason, sedition, insurrection. Meanwhile, Vice President Pence has repeatedly refused to say the phrase Black Lives Matter, showing an inability to engage with the substantive demands or even the most basic arguments of the movement. Furthermore, Trump has attempted to use the state security apparatus in a highly personalised way, deploying the Secret Service and bringing in agents directly under the command of the Attorney General. As such, the federal government has given the appearance of having picked a side, rather than serving as an honest broker between local communities and local police forces. This has helped to cause a breakdown in trust which cannot be easily repaired simply through a democratic win in November. It's this breakdown of trust that explains how protesters went from demanding justice for specific cases of police brutality to demanding the abolition of policing in its current form. The context of this escalation can firstly be understood within the context of police militarisation, a phenomenon which is not unique to the US but which is perhaps most visible there. The militarisation of the police is nothing new, but it was kicked up into a higher gear with the birth of the war on terror. Part of this was about the tactics and techniques. The national security framework developed to fight Al-Qaeda was increasingly used by police forces to track environmentalists, anti-war protesters and other activists. Post-2008, the increase in urban unrest related to the financial crisis and police brutality saw the police employ aggressive infiltration and crowd control tactics. As Glenn Greenbold said of the police response to Occupy Wall Street, the police response was so excessive and so clearly modelled after battlefield tactics that there was no doubt that deterring domestic dissent is one of the primary aims of police militarisation. Beyond this, the police increasingly gained access to weapons of war through the Pentagon's uh, 1033 programme. Predecessors of this programme go back to 1949, but the modern incarnation started in the early 90s. This programme allowed the Department of Defence to transfer surplus military supplies to civilian law enforcement agencies. Some of this material is fairly benign, sleeping bags, clothing, flashlights, etc. But, given the US's huge military budget and the constant production of new technology, it also includes weapons and armoured vehicles, tanks basically, which have been used in the response to Black Lives Matter and other protests. This has drawn ire from politicians, including from Republican senators like the Libertarian Rand Paul, who said that this programme has incentivised the militarisation of local police precincts and helped municipal governments build what are essentially small armies. 
Crucially, this has very tangible effects on police behaviour. An academic study by Delaney, Mewerter, Welsh and Wilkes found that 1033 transfers are linked to higher levels of police violence, specifically the killing of both humans and dogs. Another issue is the culture of policing within the US. Most police officers do not live within the communities they serve, often commuting from suburban homes to urban communities. There is also a preponderance of white officers, even within African American communities. Police officers also hold vastly different views on policing and social issues than members of the public. In particular, police officers tend to be more socially conservative and perceive society as being more violent and dangerous than it really is. This fits with a long-running effort on the right to create the perception of a war on police, both in terms of violence by the public against the police and efforts by nefarious liberal politicians to undermine law enforcement. The war on police narrative has little basis in reality. Police unions are some of the only powerful unions left in America. Overall funding for law enforcement in the US is astronomically high compared to other countries and to other areas of state spending. And being a police officer is safer now than it was in the past, with overall levels of violent crime being reduced in most cities. Nevertheless, there is now a cultural and political disconnect that acts as a barrier between the police and the communities they are meant to protect and serve. In recent years, the police have come to develop their own symbols and culture. Online spaces populated by law enforcement portrays an insular and often disturbingly racist culture as exemplified by a private Facebook group operated by Immigration and Customs Enforcement officers. This f- Facebook page involved an extremely racist and misogynistic discourse targeting mi- migrants, asylum seekers and democratic politicians. The thin blue line flag now associated with the Blue Lives Matter counter-movement and the Punisher skull have emerged as identifying symbols for what is now effectively a social movement within the place. The Punisher skull is a particularly strange symbol, based on a comic book anti-hero who is a traumatised ex-soldier who uses torture and deadly force to combat gangsters and supervillains. Obviously, this is just a comic book character, but it's hard to imagine a less appropriate symbol for a rural police officer than a psychopathic ex-marine who constantly shoots and kills his way out of trouble. These kinds of symbols are very common in social movements and protest groups and function as a way of mobilising people, but it doesn't really fit with the constitutional role of the police as neutral arbiters and peacekeepers, and it shows just how politicised policing has come. Although these attitudes are not shared by all, or necessarily even most, police officers, it creates something of a fortress mentality. Today, America has given a privileged status to the police establishment. By describing chokeholds as innocent, the president has condoned the atrocities meted out against the marginalised. His vision to make America great again is based around the lionisation of American soldiers, as he put it, which now includes not only members of the armed forces, but also law enforcement officials, as part of a fight against progressive politics. In short, this aggressively pro-police, anti-protester rhetoric is a kind of identity politics that white conservatives can rally behind. In addition to playing into these left-right culture war discourses, these sort of mobilising symbols within the police force serve to establish two key narratives. Narratives which arguably contribute to the ongoing violence against protesters and people of colour. Firstly, the narrative that the rest of society stands against the police, requiring a fortress mentality. This is exemplified by the fact that while it's safer to be a police officer now than it was 50 years ago, police themselves believe it's become much more dangerous. Secondly, 
It reinforces this idea that the police should think of themselves as warriors, constantly in danger and so on the verge of using or receiving violence. This argument is encouraged by people like Dave Grossman, a wildly popular police trainer who encourages officers to be mentally prepared to kill at all times. Grossman seeks to promote a vicious cycle of perpetual violence, arguing that we fight violence. What do we fight it with? Superior violence. Righteous violence. While Grossman is a former soldier and a sort of self-appointed expert on the psychology of killing, he has never killed himself. But he does encourage police officers to use violence very freely. It's unsurprising that some police officers who have been involved in deadly shootings had recently attended one of his seminars. While high-level political narratives encourage the police to feel under threat from liberal politicians or reformists, people like Grossman encourage individual police officers to feel afraid and to respond to that fear with violence. It's not difficult to see how this worsens an already bad situation. In short, many law enforcement bodies in the US are no longer functioning as neutral agents of the law, but rather as a semi-autonomous social movement within the state, complete with its own symbols, its own mobilising narratives and its own heroes and villains. This particular cultural moment in American policing, in collision with systemic inequality and the pressures created by coronavirus, explains why state violence was allowed to escalate so quickly and so extremely. It's on some level unsurprising that a broad cross-racial coalition demanding justice and reform was met with some kind of reactionary backlash, particularly given the level of polarisation in America and many other Western democracies. However, the worrying aspect of this is that the reactionary backlash is not just from one group of counter-protesters against another, but appears to be embedded within the state's own security apparatus. The danger, then, is that precisely those institutions of policing and the judiciary which are supposed to help manage social conflict have now become drawn in as major antagonists. Resistance to reform has gone beyond the usual institutional inertia, instead becoming an existential battle in the ongoing culture war. The upcoming election is only likely to heighten the tension at a moment when political leaders should be seeking meaningful compromise and reform. Anyway, thanks very much for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks, maybe closer to a month. And I also want to say thank you to Saman Kidvani for helping to write this episode and to Desara Serra who helped to come up with the concept. Um, anyway, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.